watchers in the fourth dimension. Prepare to initiate program 236. The knowledge I shall gain is worth any risk. Some sort of freak! Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And I shouldn't worry about him, Brigadier. He's probably chatting quite happily to his monster friends. This episode, we are tackling the sophomore effort of the Pertwee era. As it turns out, in these episodes, the invaders were always here in Doctor Who and the Silurians. Before we discuss the story, we're going to quickly do the mail, which Don has been collecting over the past couple of weeks. Don. Over to you. Our email comes this week from Dave Columbus, who writes, I'm in the middle of my rewatch for an entirely different style project, Death and Doctor Who, and I'm so glad I started listening to your podcast. The four of you bring up many subtle items that I overlooked, and you make me laugh out loud sometimes. That said, I had to go back to the start of my project and rewrite portions of the Hartnell essays after my proofreader sent me back the final files. But I don't mind because your podcast only made my essays better. Thanks, Dave. We appreciate it. From Instagram, the Whovian Girl writes, Hi, I've only just started listening to your podcast, and I absolutely love it. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on Season 7 and find out how bad your post-war games depression is. It's it's pretty bad, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and we had two comments from Facebook. David Campbell, on our Season 6 retrospective, said, Prison in space would undoubtedly have been hot garbage in space. Yes, yes it would have. But it would have given us a first that would have made New Who weep with envy. The first villainous to fall madly in love with the Doctor. And Neil Rhodes comments on the second part of the War Games. I enjoyed your War Games podcast and I'm looking forward to hearing you go through the Pertwee years. By the way, it was Michael Troughton, not David, who was in The New Statesman. David Troughton has been in various things over the years, but his best known TV role was playing Dr. Bob Buzzard in A Very Peculiar Practice, an 80s BBC series that starred some unknown called Peter Davidson. <laughs> well, I was unsure as to whether or not it was David and I think I said that, so uh, I was wrong and thank you for the correction. Next up, we're moving into our behind-the-scenes segment with the new concept for an Earthbound version of Doctor Who moving ahead. Script editor Terence Dix approached his old friend Malcolm Hulk to provide a script for the revamped show. Hulk had previously co-written The Faceless Ones and The War Games in the Troughton era. He was, however, reluctant to return to the show, believing that the Earthbound setting would restrict the format to two things, mad scientists and alien invasions. Dix challenged him to come up with something new, and he came up with the idea of a race of creatures that inhabited the Earth before we did. With that, he was commissioned to write The Monsters as a six-part story, which eventually became The Silurians and was extended to seven parts. This was originally scheduled to be the third serial of the season, but when issues arose with the scripts for David Whitaker's The Ambassadors of Death, the two were transposed in the running order. During scripting, there were also a number of changes occurring within the production team. Producer Peter Bryant had already moved over to the mystery series Paul Temple, which was running into big problems. His successor on Doctor Who, Derek Sherwin, would soon join him. The search for a new producer for Doctor Who had begun. BBC head of serials Sean Sutton initially approached podcast favourite Dougie Camfield, who promptly turned the role down. Next on the list was Barry Letts, who had previously directed season five's The Enemy of the World. He accepted the role and will go on to stay as producer for five seasons. During his time with the show, he will also direct five more stories, write another four, and return as executive producer for season 18. However, because of his commitments to another show, pre-production work on The Silurians was overseen by assistant script editor Trevor Ray, who would shortly thereafter join Sherwin and Bryant over on Paul Temple. 
Production on the Silurians began a week late, owing to the same industrial action that had forced Spearhead from Space out of the studio. A scientist director was Timothy Coombe, making his directorial debut on the show, although he had previously been assistant floor manager on season 1's The Keys of Marinus and The Reign of Terror, and had also directed the model shots in season 4's The Evil of the Daleks. Coombe was joined on the creative team by OG designer Barry Newbury, returning to the show for a whopping 10th time, season 7 costumer Christine Rawlins, and newcomer Kerry Blyton providing incidental music. Blyton will return to the show twice more, albeit with slightly less bleepy scores, I promise. <laughs> he is also known for being the nephew of author Enid Blyton and was a prolific musician contributing to film, TV, radio, as well as music production. Despite his illustrious career, he's now best remembered for creating the theme tune to the TV show Bananas in Pajamas. But I digress. Getting back to production on the Silurians, one particularly problematic issue that Coombe had to deal with were the sets for the caves. He'd originally wanted to shoot these scenes on location at the Wookiee Hole Caves in Somerset, nothing to do with Chewbacca. However, this was not logistically feasible, and so it was back to the drawing boards. The next method under consideration was to leverage something called Color Separation Overlay, which is commonly abbreviated CSO, and is also known as Chroma Key. However, the technology was still in its infancy, and a visible fringe of color often surrounded the actors on screen. So this idea was also abandoned, although it did find its way into the story in some small ways. Ultimately, it was decided that they would build the set in the studio. Because the BBC did not have the expertise to build them, Barry Newbury hired outside contractors who didn't provide a framework with which to hang these sets. In the end, these sets went to waste, and Barry Newbury assembled a new cave set using stock items from the various BBC store closets and some hastily constructed stalagmites and stalactites. And here I thought they just filmed at the old styrofoam mines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Barry Letts immediately made his mark on the show by requesting the ending of the serial be changed. Audience research reports had revealed that over half of the show's audience was made up of adults, and so Let's wanted to take the show in a more mature direction. The result was Unit blowing up the Silurian's base and effectively committing implied genocide. That got dark pretty quickly. And finally, to talk about the elephant in the room, the on-screen title, which was unusually Doctor Who and the Silurians. Most of the scripts produced to date for the show were actually entitled as that, for example, Doctor Who and the War Games, but the prefix was always dropped from the televised episodes. It was included here by mistake, and to avoid a future occurrence, the prefix was dropped from all future scripts. We move into our short summary, which is in the hands of Riley this episode. We open on the live-action remake of the arcade classic Dig Dug as two explorers are attacked by a large green reptile. Obviously, Unit is called in to investigate, which reveals that the creature was Reptar from the Rugrats, and we learn that he is controlled by the Silurians, a race of questionably intelligent creatures evolved from green silly putty. Why do I say questionably? Well, they thought that the moon was going to crash into the Earth, so they went into hibernation, and they screwed up their own hibernation so much that it required the dumb luck of a nuclear power station to be built next to them to wake them up. Well, guess what? They are awake and grumpy, and the humans are scared and heavily armed, which leads to conflict. The Silurians have a change in leadership and decide to attack by using a disease. Luckily, the Doctor and Liz were smart enough to quickly inject people with broad-spectrum antibiotics to stop the disease, but several people at the power station and within unit refuse the injections, claiming that it causes people to be magnetized, gain 5G cell service, become a part of Bill Gates' slave army, and some refuse just to be dicks. Oh, what am I saying? That could never happen. That is too preposterous. It's even for a sci-fi show. The doctor develops a cure, but the Silurians kidnap him before he can write down the secret recipe. Liv discovers the formula, and the plague is stopped by the Silurians use the doctor to get access to control room just so they can plug in their microwave. The doctor and Liz stop them by starting a Chernobyl that makes them go back to hibernate, and the doctor and Liz 
says, stop the meltdown. The Brigadier acts like a genocidal a-hole and blows up the entire Silurian base. The end. All right, we're done, guys. <laughs> <laughs> now we actually move into our story discussion, and we do have seven episodes to talk about, so we're going to try and keep this one tight. Episode one. The Doctor is a gearhead. That's like his thing now, isn't he? Wasn't he quoting Alice in Wonderland or something? Jabberwocky. <laughs> yeah. This is like us with the third Doctor for a truly a first time because that pilot serial for a Doctor is always kind of doing too much. Now we got a lot more personality. The third Doctor seems a lot more snippy than the first and second. Which, given how snippy the first Doctor was at the beginning, that's saying something. He's not as bitchy, but he is snippier. I will agree with that assessment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you just need to look at his reaction to the Brigadier's telegram for that, and Liz has to talk him into it. Yeah, so we get to the introduction of the world's worst boss, which was something I had hoped had disappeared at the end of the Trout <laughs> era, with a character I despised his entire time on screen. And this is where actually one of my first problems with this, aside from him, came on, is that I don't really see why they would have called in unit for this, because they don't know about the terrible, terrible dinosaur. All mm -hmm. they know is they're having occasional losses of power and problems with, with staff. That's not a unit problem. One of the issues with staff is that one guy is in a hospital room and painting like cave murals on the wall. That's so. still not a unit problem. That's not even yeah. why they called them in. They called them in because they were losing power every so often. <laughs> I think part of it was is they had the one guy from, I think, the Defense Department who is connected with the, all of this. Major Baker. Yes. So I think that might be why unit got called in. He's questioning why units are involved, because he's saying, I think this is sabotage. Why have you guys called in unit? There's nothing weird. It's just people breaking our shit. Even he's skeptical. But unit basically just invited themselves. Pretty much. Fundamentally, all of the research station personnel kind of seem like assholes, except yes. for Dr. <laughs> Quinn, who later turns out to be an asshole himself. But at first, he's very affable and he's very stylish, too. My first realization of him is that he's just a grinning idiot. And then I realized <laughs> as the serial goes on, it's like, oh, because he's putting it on. He's trying to remove any suspicion from himself as just being like a empty suit. Which later on, he completely loses his ability to not be suspicious. Yes, he does. <laughs> Dr. Lawrence, who is the bad boss, played by Peter Miles, who is phenomenal. He comes back for Genesis of the Daleks, where he plays an iconic role, a character called Nida. And he's also an accomplished jazz musician. Awesome. Yeah. All right. One thing that I noticed about all of the set pieces is that all of the glass is missing. And it led to really weird things. Like, okay, I'm going to call this person who's probably about 15 feet away. And I'm just like, well, why don't you just shout? <laughs> Why don't, you, why don't you just speak in a normal tone? And while we're on the visuals, one thing that I was kind of struck by that I thought wouldn't happen anymore on the show, in the control room, they do a zoom on the doctor and the focus goes out. Good two, three seconds on the zoom. How could you tell? The whole thing looks like it was shot on a potato. <laughs> Well, that one just was the worst part of the potato then. <laughs> I, I do actually want to talk about that. It's because they lost the color version. They did lose the color version, kind of. The standards between the US and the UK had a different number of lines on them. So the US or the North American version had less color information on it. 
they lost the PAL, the UK version of the color, but they had the black and white negatives. In the 90s, they kind of merged the two together between the NTSC color and the black and white to try and recolorize at the highest standard possible. But the result is this horribly blurred thing that we have now. I'm kind of hoping when they get around to putting it out on Blu-ray that it will be cleaned up and be a bit more presentable, but we'll see what happens. And while we're on visual issues, I just want to go ahead and jump to this. There's a scene in episode six in the lab scene with the doctor and Liz when they're working on the cure. Did anyone else notice that one of the credits was like burned into the image? It wasn't my television because it was, you know, so long mm-hmm. into the episode, but it was like literally burned in. Into I did the- not yeah. notice that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Moving back to what we were talking about, even Dr. Meredith, who doesn't officially work there, he's also a complete jerk. Yeah. Because <laughs> the doctor's like, well, can I see him? No, blah, blah, blah. And the doctor has to pull rank just to be able to see this guy that's drawing crazy crap on the walls. It's a mess. There are zero likable mm-hmm. characters in this. Yeah. The entire power station is people on the top, they're a-holes, and then people below them all have panic disorders, like Roberts, yeah. Yeah. you know, mm-hmm. just freezing up for, which I couldn't figure out, like, Episode seems to hint that if you see Reptar, then you're going to have be mentally disturbed afterwards and you have a lot of a stress disorder. But we don't think Roberts ever saw him and he just freezes in the middle of a routine exercise. So I don't know where that was attached to. It wasn't just the dinosaur. It was the Silurians causing it to happen. There's even a lot of tension between the doctor and the brigadier in this. I mean, it very much seems like a marriage of convenience that they're working together. And again, it just means that there's no one really likable except for Liz. That's true. <laughs> Yes. That's true. Who's prancing around in a mini dress, which isn't very practical for the setting, but I do like the style. They always changed when they went down to the caves. They did. There was a lot of costume changes in this. It's Mm -hmm. a Zoe level of costume change. Mm -hmm. I did love seeing the Doctor in his spelunking gear, Mm -hmm. which (laughs) kind of takes us down towards the end of the episode where we get those same roars as at the beginning, and then we see Reptar himself, and that leads us into our cliffhanger and episode two. And that's also where I broke out in hysterical laughter myself at seeing Reptar. (laughs) It was um, something special. Yeah. It would have looked less crappy in black and white. Yeah, that seems to be a continual theme, isn't it? I mean, it's just how our brains work, but you can be a lot more forgiving with rough special effects when they're black and white or a grainier picture because your mind helps color in the rest, I guess. Or what it would look even better is if they didn't write a stupid dinosaur into the script that served no purpose. Yeah, right. That That would have looked amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Every once in a while, it seemed like they were hinting at something happening between someone and Major Baker. I was like, are we going to get a random romance thrown in here? But then it never happened but it happened several times through episode two and three major baker and the dinosaur (laughs) (laughs) we we really get to see the silurians in this episode so my question for everyone is isn't it kind of awkward that they're kind of close to the our favorite the arse warriors both kind of standing humanoid reptilian kind of creatures this one even had asthma and this was the only one in the serial that had that breathing issue i don't know if he did have asthma if he was just a pervert or what it was he was ice warriors on his mother's side i'm guessing oh okay that makes sense (laughs) what i like about it is we don't really get a good look at them until i think it's next episode Mm -hmm. this one we get the first person perspective oh yeah yeah from the salorian and then occasionally like a little bit of an arm or something Mm -hmm. around the corner but you never see the whole thing they do get the reptile piece right in this in that they like heat and not cold kudos to that these are proper reptiles not fake (laughs) reptiles (laughs) and 
We also have an interesting scene here where Quinn, because now we have a reveal with Quinn, that Quinn is involved with the Silurians. He's been communicating with them. He goes to their base. And what is up with the red light, put your hands up thing? Is is it like a Simon Says or is it like a mind control thing? I don't know what that is for. Because if it's a mind control thing, then let's mark another square on our Troughton era bingo card. But um, what what was that? It was nothing. It served no purpose. Good question. I do like the way that the scenes are shot in the first person from the Silurian's viewpoint. And you get that red tinge at the top Mm -hmm. to indicate its third eye. I thought that was very, very well done. I like when it dove headfirst into the bale of hay. I'm like, I get you, Silorian. That's 100% what I would do. That does lead us into getting our comedy yokel for the uh, episode. Uh, He wasn't very funny, though. He wasn't half the comedy yokel the other guy was. No, he was not. Is this going to be the trend for the Pertwee era? Is that we're going to get English countryside (laughs) people getting terrorized by science fiction monsters? I did for one moment because he called out his wife's name when he saw the Silurian and just for a second I thought does that what do you think the Silurian's name is because that would be amazing (laughs) a very confused farmer who thinks his wife is a Silurian also I really hope that they finally get to a point where the husband and wife actually like each other because it doesn't really sound like they're really pleasant people no one likes anybody in this serial there was kind of some fun music with with some clarinet this is probably the most positive feedback I have on the music of this entire serial (laughs) (laughs) There were two types of music in this. One, barely noticeable, inoffensive, and oh my god, what the hell is happening? (laughs) Yeah. A hundred percent. It's it's a new genre based in kazoo and cats fighting on a xylophone. (laughs) We've gone over the fact that it was apparently shot on a potato. But the fact that in, what, 1970, they were able to surround sound? Because in the right channel, I distinctly heard, oh my god, what the hell is that? Turn that off. It was really impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. All right, so there is one character I really, really like, but he's barely in it, and that is Captain Hawkins, who we only get for this story. It's Paul Darrow, and he's just a legend, and I love seeing him in this. We have a Silurian and, and some Bela Hay, and don't we have Liz Shaw situation here? I think that at the cliffhanger. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the creature kills the not very comedic yokel, and his wife was apparently too slow to call the police for his liking. They come to investigate, and she basically gets attacked by the Silurian while the doctor and the brigadier... What was it? They went to to look at something and they left her alone they went to the hospital yes and he actually died of heart failure rather than being killed by the silurian so it was caused by fear i think was the dialogue in the episode and then and then mrs squire heads into the same kind of state of shock as spencer to be fair though because the silurians are doing it through their like weird telekin whatever head thing it really could have been them causing the heart failure that's fair. That's true. I wasn't a big fan of the jewel in the head thing. I felt it it took away rather than added. It's it's meant to be their third eye. That's that's what the design is. It's it's a third eye. Three eyes are fine, but you're opening and closing holes in in walls with it. It's a weapon. It's yeah. a floor wax, it's a dessert topping. Make up your damn mind. What is this thing? <laughs> I didn't mind it so much, except for the fact that they had to like emphasize it with like a Bill Cosby head wobble kind of thing <laughs> for some reason. And it just kind of took me out of it there. When you have multiple Silurians on screen at once, that's the only way you can tell which one is speaking as well. So you get a lot of the head wobble mm, as they're talking yeah. to each other. 
So Liz gets a tat and we're on to episode three. Episode three. Somebody got access to a helicopter and they're damn sure going to film it. (laughs) (laughs) They may have even traded in the bubble machine for it. So they're going to use it. (laughs) But helicopters bringing in dogs. I mean, they obviously got a windfall from the BBC budget for this story. And this Uh. is how they decided to use that budget? Yep. Mm. All right. A chase across the moors. Or something across the moors. A low, slow search with a helicopter and a bunch of guys in military uniforms walking across. Yep. Thrilling, thrilling action. This is also where Quinn completely loses his ability to be inconspicuous. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Showing up at the barn, even though it's like 20 miles out of his way. Yeah. You give Liz a ride? Um, no. But you just said you were going back to office. I'm stopping somewhere else first, and I've got my dry cleaning. <laughs> and Quinn, what's that annoying beeping remote control sticking out of your back pocket? What is that thing? It's my pacemaker. That's why. <laughs> That's my yeah. thoughts. That is my thoughts. It's just, <laughs> make it stop. It's Liz that knows what's going on. She's the one who's like, hang on, this is miles away from his home. This is miles away from the station. This is so far out of his way. What the hell is he doing here? The doctor's suspicious, but she's the one who comes in with the facts. He seemed to be pressing him. He did seem to know him, but yes, Liz did know, like, hey, look at this map we've been looking at for however long, and he was no help. What's he doing here? Yeah. So I know we've briefly discussed it before, but, you know, in the first serial with Pertwee, I was like, I don't really know how this is going. But I finally got to a point where we're really close to that doctor moment. He actually, I think, has a few of them in this serial. And that's probably, again, the most positive thing that the doctor does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This whole yeah. Thing. To me, his doctor moment happened in, in episode four. This episode, I mainly remember because when Quinn goes and uses the tracker and the beeping. <laughs> I love it when he's out in the field and the helicopter's coming by and he just kind of stuffs it in his pocket and waves at the helicopter. It's like, dude, that's that's and then drives off. Like, but, dude, that's not at all suspicious. But keep in mind, this thing was so loud in universe, the doctor and brigadier noticed when he turned it off. Yeah. And they weren't even within line of sight of it. It was that loud. <laughs> uh, yeah. Still, Quinn gets what he was looking for. We also get an educational moment with Pangea. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. They did that little checkbox. Way after the educational remit of the show had been ended. Mm. I love when the Doctor shows up at Quinn's cottage. Oh, it's so good. That was good. Forcing his way in, then talking about the room is very hot. It's like the reptile house at the zoo. And then he starts banging on about the thermostat. (laughs) It's just brilliant. Mm. It's definitely a game of cat and mouse. Dr. Quinn died a lot sooner than I expected him to. <laughs> that's that's very <laughs> yeah. true. I was expecting this whole thing reminds me of two serials that have been jammed together. Because mm-hmm. in the one half, you've got the quote unquote mystery of who's working with these creatures and what do they want. And then in the second half, you've got the the old plague academic bacteria mm-hmm. thing going on. And I think that's one of my issues with it. I would have preferred one more consistent story. I mean, I liked the second half better, and I would have liked to have seen that played out bigger. You would like it if it came in earlier, perhaps, if yes. we were still going to keep a seven-episode length? Okay. Because I think that would be a better, I, better way of bringing Unit in. 
is rather than the plague being intentional, it's just because mm-hmm. these creatures are before the dawn of time and we don't have an immunity to it. And yeah. it's it's seeping out and people are randomly starting to get sick for no reason. That works better. You're right. I think it was Rob Shearman and Toby Haydock who talked about this, but they, they almost said that this could be a setup for a, its own show without the Doctor. You could have the, the setup episode introducing the Silurians and then every week they find a new and different way to try and kill off humanity and the army <laughs> have to stop them. No, no, no. What a weird and... workplace comedy that would be. <laughs> so if it was done in the style of The Office from like the Silurian base, I'd watch it. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh... Yeah, so killing off Quinn, I mean, the dude was an idiot. Like, he's trying to, he gets greedy on knowledge and tries to force it out to the Silurian. So the Silurian just kills him. I still wonder how their first meeting went anyway of how they decided to give him knowledge. The initial setup for that whole thing, I would have liked to have seen his first meeting with them. Their disdain of humanity is pretty clear. So was it just a case of, hey, we need someone to help us. This guy seems willing. We bribed him with the promise of knowledge. Uh, We'll keep him around as long as he's useful i don't know I... yeah it, it had to be classic faust <laughs> well and again their their first leader was okay with the humans so he since he was in charge he was probably like yeah dr quinn is fine we'll use him then the others were the ones who were anti-human yeah as we'll say we end the episode with the doctor activating the comms device and the silurian showing up which takes us into our cliffhanger and episode four and don this might be where you were going but i'm going to say this is the moment this is the doctor moment hello Mm -hmm. are you a silurian with his hand outstretched yes this is the doctor moment yes he absolutely nails it so perfect great delivery it's a couple things that happen it's the are you a silurian handshake and then there's him trying to convince each side that hey maybe don't fight maybe talk this through and that's also a very doctor thing to do I realize we're jumping ahead a little bit with that, but I do want to say that's a new thing for Doctor Who. Because if you think back to the Troughton era, the Doctor has always unquestionably been on the side of humanity. You look at the Ice Mm -hmm. Warriors, you look at Mm -hmm. any Troughton monster, the Doctor has been helping humanity and saving the day for us. Now he's been very definitively defined as the other. We know he's definitively not human. We've met his people. We know his anatomy is different, two hearts and all that good stuff. And he's very much the other. So in this, he's not necessarily on one side or the other. He's the one trying to make peace and trying to bridge that gap. Maybe he thinks the Silurians have a point because they were on Earth first. Because they're not invading, they're just waking up and going, hey, we had dibs. That's the big ethical question of the episode. And it ties into imperialism and all that kind of stuff that's very popular to talk about in the 1970s. As the British are kind of starting to realize, huh, maybe the empire wasn't a good thing and the indigenous people had a right to that land. And just to tack on to what you were saying, Anthony, about the Third Doctor and his differences, like we said before in Spearhead, he seems like... Like he doesn't even want to be there, especially at the beginning of this serial, as we talked about while he's working on the car. He seems just grumpy about having to do anything. He's 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 reluctant about wanting to help humanity just right off the get go without even knowing what what the setup is. It's very interesting, too, because you had an 
the main thing that their doctor was saying, like, don't toss me onto Earth was I'm trying to do good. And then here comes these instances where he could do some good and he doesn't want to do it. Oh, you know, he's in depression. He's been exiled. He just wants to sit in the couch in sweatpants watching Netflix, except they've sent him to uh, uh, 50 years too early for Netflix. And God damn it, that just makes things worse. <laughs> as long as he doesn't learn Netflix and chill. <laughs> Nice. I also like the Silorians coming out of the tanning bed. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. The Cybermen did it better. Ooh, <laughs> I have the kazoo notes in this episode too. Oh, it's all over the place. <laughs> I mean, I had the constant of I couldn't really tell when it was sound effects versus when it was soundtrack. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> Because he just decided to go so out there with the soundtrack that I'm like, you use so much techno, not techno, but whatever noises in your soundtrack that I can't tell anymore. The Silurians just had this weird, silly, and it did sound a lot like a kazoo. I don't think it was, but there's this weird theme. And I'm just like, what is going on? The music is really drawing attention to itself in a way it, it normally doesn't do. And it's not to its benefit. A soundtrack or a sound effect, all I know is that it's used to test if people are prone to migraines. That's all I know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I could only watch two episodes max at a time for these last couple ones because that music man was... Oh, ugh. the mute button was used regularly. So to talk about the actual plot... <laughs> 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 Major Baker escapes from the hospital, goes down the caves. The brigadier knows where he's going. We see him get caught in the trap and the doctor and Liz start talking about going down. And I love how rambunctious Liz is here. You know, she insists mm -hmm. on going down to the caves and says to the doctor, you're either going to let me come or I'm going to tell Lethbridge Stewart what you're doing. And I know you don't want me to do that. <laughs> yeah. It's she good. is awesome. Yeah, she's she's really fitting in well. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like, you know, this is not just the only second serial for the Doctor. It's also the second serial for her. We're getting to know her a lot better, too. And I think she's coming through really well here. I just wish they gave her a little bit more to do. I agree. And also, when Baker goes down to the caves, I got really excited there because at first I thought it was a like a foam machine, but no, it was just a bubble machine. So disappointing. No, the foam machine has mostly been retired. I think we get a little bit of it next season. You almost felt bad for him because he had to escape from the world's dumbest guard in the hospital. <laughs> Yeah. And then immediately gets captured once he goes down to the cave. Apparently unit make you take an IQ test before you get in. And if you get over 90, you're rejected. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Now. Yeah. Oh, all right. Or at least that's based on, on uh, Sergeant Hart, I think. Well, they didn't call him Sergeant Brain. Can tell why. <laughs> One of the other things, too, that ended up happening is that there were too many something versus something. There was, you know, your colonialism versus non-colonialism. There's your science versus military. There's your this versus is that this it, they just kept adding on and on all these different things that were fighting against each other and they couldn't come up with one theme to cover the entire serial yeah and you had a lot of different characters but personally i didn't really care about them like i did in the war games where you had probably twice as many characters but they were interesting mm -hmm. yeah we here i'm just like oh lord you're you're all just obnoxious <laughs> yeah that seems to be their only defining trait is just that we do meet the one character who I actually vaguely care about in this episode, but that might only be because who it's played by, and that's Masters, who is played by Jeffrey Palmer, and that's epic, and that made me care about him. He's, his character was interesting. I think I would have liked him a bit better if he had left before the Doctor explained about the plague. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Well, I... I 
I would agree with you, Don, if we hadn't just lived through a pandemic mm -hmm. and seen literally how some people don't give a shit about everyone else. And that's the kind of behavior you would see. This guy seemed to care. He wasn't Lawrence. He wasn't a complete a-hole moron. He, he seemed to understand. That's why I'm like, you should have moved that scene a bit earlier. There are some structural mm -hmm. problems here. But so many people have this attitude of, I'm different. I'm special. I'll be fine. This won't happen to me. That, yes, but not that character. <laughs> that, that character. Okay, fair, fair. Despite all what you said, the thing that really gets me about it is that it's not just like how he feels about it. He's feeling so bad. He is literally stumbling. And instead of going home, he decides to stumble around London for like five hours. I'm like, like, even if... We also jumped ahead, so... Yes, 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 it's true, yeah. We can only assume that he his illness made his judgment fall into <laughs> disrepair. There's a lot in general going on in this episode. Everything going on in the caves, the Doctor trying to convince everyone to give the Silurians the benefit of the doubt before Miss Dawson comes in and says, yeah, they killed Quinn, so we must destroy them before they destroy us. I mean, you've got that, you've got Masters showing up, you've got Liz and the Doctor stumbling around the caves, and then... We end with... No one knows. Something. <laughs> we end with the end credits. They were really bad cliffhangers in this entire serial. I didn't really particularly care for any of them. I, I did like this one with the Silurian saying, I destroyed the, them, being the soldiers, and now I shall destroy oh. you. I, I thought that was pretty cool. Going into episode five, that's a problem with the previous cliffhanger, is that we're told that they're destroyed, and then it was so jarring to see the Brigadier and the unit troops trapped in the cave, and I'm like, did we? Did I miss the rock fall? Did I miss how they got trapped? It's just, all of a sudden, they're just there and they're trapped. I don't remember seeing any action to show how they were trapped. There was dialogue. They turned around and there was a wall where there wasn't one before. Uh, okay. It was dialogue. It wasn't uh, any action. Also, I'm getting really tired of the trope of one person is like on the side of, of the humans or the doctor and then everyone else wants to kill them all. Yep. I'm yeah. really tired. It's the dominators all over again when you got this fight going on between your leader leaders and they're saying, I want to do this. I want to do this. And it just evolves and it does not make me happy. Yeah. The doctor at this point in episode five, this is where he's trying to really convince the Silurians that they can have a two state solution with the humans <laughs> yeah. to be to be historically uh, <laughs> on the nose. Also, this was when we started getting the humans being called apes, and I was having a lot of issues with that. It really is a commentary on colonialism. Do we try and elevate these savages to our level from the Silurian's perspective, or do we just kill them off and have a better society without them? It's pretty on the nose, particularly for the time. There's no subtlety in it whatsoever. Every single time they said apes, I was like cringing. <laughs> it, it just did i did not take that well it made it a lot more difficult to side with the silurians as far mm -hmm. as hey maybe we could just like no these guys are just jerks sorry you fall asleep for a few million years you lost your claim yeah yep well hey they can still have the underground right but then we get a lot more arguments around tables so that's nice yes <laughs> Dr. Lawrence, I know we've already touched on him. I was getting so frustrated with him watching this. He goes into total denial around the existence of the Silurians, despite more and more people seeing them. You've got the Doctor, Liz, Miss Dawson, Dr. Quinn, people he, at least half of whom, worked for him and he at some point trusted. And he's just walking around going, nope, nope, nothing, nothing to see here, nothing's wrong, this is fine, everything's fine. <laughs> well, yeah. on top of that... 
On top of that, he has this delusion that all of this was set up to remove him from his position of apparently tremendous power of being in charge of this power station. I'm like, why would you think that they would create a fake a fake disease in order to remove you from power? There's a lot easier ways of doing that. They could just fire yeah. you for one. He seems almost crazy and, yes. and you're wondering how did anyone put you in a position with any kind of authority to begin with and then he has all the the, the that that paranoia of like of a villain but he's not the villain of the piece he's just an he's just an asshole yeah it's like he has all the parts of being like concerned about keeping his power but he has no plans to gain more power or do anything duplicitous he's just just a jerk he's a little man yeah but this is the episode where we do get finally to understand what the Silurians' point of view is, that they saw the moon coming and their <laughs> their solution was, we'll just all go and hibernate underground, which is impressive. It would have made more sense to make it the same asteroid that we now think wiped out the dinosaurs. That's true. So they found a way to survive yeah. when the dinosaurs didn't. But hey. Couldn't we have just just been an ice age? I mean, they can't handle the cold, the reptiles. Couldn't it have just been they, they had an ice age and like, oh, okay, we just need to like hibernate for an ice age. But then like their hibernation does go wrong. And, and therefore, that's why they miss the thawing of the ice age. Any other catastrophe that actually happened as opposed to, oh, we thought that it was going to hit Earth. So we were like, eh, we'll just go to sleep. It's fine. This is where we start getting the disease. You know, the younger Silurian has infected Major Baker, who shows symptoms pretty quickly. And we get the leader, who is getting increasingly annoyed with his counterpart, telling him, I shall destroy you if you defy me again, <laughs> and gives the doctor a sample of the bacteria. We see the Silurian factions playing off against each other here. So this is another versus, as Julie puts it, until the younger Silurian takes out the leader, which makes it feel very kind of Roman court drama, which is fun. <laughs> oh, and we get the people could just not stay in place and actually do a quarantine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this particular bacteria, as they referred to it, it seems to work rather inconsistently, mm -hmm. but I think it's in the next episode because it's all caused the permanent undersecretary and his wanderings, whereas this guy and a few of the people later on, it just it seems to take them almost immediately. Yeah. Major Baker gets taken to the hospital and dies outside. The doctor says, oh, the first one. And that's our cliffhanger into the big triggering episode, episode six, pandemic time. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part of this is the very beginning is that once the doctor like refuses the orders that the... <laughs> that the doctor is giving in the parking lot of the hospital. Oh, notice how quickly the brigadier draws his gun. And Almost he immediately. And blooded. And he's just like, boom, I'm, I'm just going to drop him right here. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we also got the doctor even being like, I don't need to take those antibiotics. <laughs> doctor, just do what you're told. I really love how the answer is, let's just pump antibiotics into everyone. <laughs> That's the foundation of medicine for the next 60 years. <laughs> Got a cold? Give you antibiotics. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Gammy knee? Antibiotics. Let's give everyone antibiotic resistance. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, admittedly, this is a bacteria, so it probably will work. Uh, but, yeah. but there is the tendency to prescribe antibiotics for everything. Mm-hmm. There was that point where the brigadier was trying to convince Liz, like, oh, you need to help man the telephones. She's like, I'm a scientist. And I'm like, absolutely. There make There's zero sense of her working the telephones. Yeah, very true. Zero zero percent and it, I, it that irked me and then the doctor tells her to go work the telephones yes oh so mad masters is not patient zero but he is the super spreader oh my god <laughs> apparently his has a very slow working infection because he's able to just go and leave a path of destruction in his wake i love the yeah. footage i love the footage of him coming out of the train station because especially at that point he's still like not feeling that well because it's just it's absolute quiet I couldn't help but think it was like stock footage for like an anti-nausea or anti-diarrheal commercial. Because <laughs> he's just sitting there and he's just like, oh, oh. It's like, uh, Silurian play I, can strike you at any time. <laughs> I really loved the various close-ups they gave on him. I thought it was very, very effective in showing how sick he, he was getting and he seemed to be really fighting it. But That's even better because you no, they didn't get any permits to shoot that. No. Oh, it, not. No. Absolutely not. And then you got, like, you have him who's taking forever, and then you get back to the train station, and they're dropping, like, flies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. And then you've got Dr. Lawrence back in the research center, still in denial about the disease and the epidemic, claiming Major Baker may have been ill for some time. Let's be honest, this guy probably would have voted for Trump. Probably. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, Uh, There is no disease. It's all fine. uh, (laughs) Nothing is wrong. Don't let the Silurian plague dominate your life. (laughs) Get out there. Live your life. (laughs) Don, I I do agree with you on the the inconsistency on the spread and, and how quickly some get infected versus others. That's yeah. not, I, I would have not li- fantastically I would have liked done. to have seen this part expanded out with less arguing for the other episodes. I mean, the other half of what we have is the Doctor and Liz working on a cure with a huge tray worth of bottles. Every drug in existence, apparently. Imagine apparently. if LSD had been the cure. <laughs> that would have been amazing. I would have loved that. That would have been great. We can cure this bacteria, but you're going to have to trip before you can be free of it. Oh. And then they just have like a big, like, you know, 60s, like, freak out. And then that's the last episode. That would have been amazing. That would have been lovely. But now yeah. we get to the part I've been waiting for this entire serial, which is when Lawrence finally dies. <laughs> Oh, yes. His proper breakdown. And he is in denial the entire time. And he's like got sores all over his arms and his face, and he's still denying that this thing even exists, mm-hmm. and he's just ranting and raving. <laughs> oh. And then just collapses dead. After, after trying to strangle. That's my favorite part of it. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I noticed is that we see a lot more on-screen deaths than we have in a lot of the other Doctor that we've covered so far. That's something we commented on last time with Spearhead, the death count, and we're seeing that again here. And I think that ties very much into that effort to make the show a bit more adult and a bit more mature. Okay, so death equates to maturity. Awesome. Well, (laughs) death equates to things you wouldn't want your kids to see, maybe. It's certainly not questionable dinosaurs. That's not the adult content. Hey, at least it's not the Torchwood (laughs) method of maturity of cursing and sex. 
So the doctor knows his antidote works. He's going to get the cure out really quickly. So what the hell happened to all of the testing and regulations on it, you know, that we, we have to go through now? Were they just not around at the time or was no, he just no like, time. screw it? No, no. Yeah. You got to get that thing out there. Yeah. So the doctor is kidnapped by the Silurians, getting to do one of his trademark Pertwee guns as the cliffhanger, and episode seven. And we get yeah. further example of their magic third eye. Removing uh, and adding walls. Uh -huh. They have a future as contractors. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> I love how everyone is, is like, damn, wish the doctor would get on with this. And it's like, it just cuts right. to him being dragged away. <laughs> and then we get the Brigadier again being like, where's this damn cure? Because that's how quickly no one... these things happen. <laughs> it's like, we know that they're, you know, we have a problem with the Silurian. So the one person who has the answer to everything, we're not going to like have a guard on him. That sounds yeah. like a good plan. We also did get one military jaunt in our music. The jaunty <laughs> unit theme. <laughs> so at least that uh... was consistent. And again, probably one of the only uh, pluses in that soundtrack score. Yeah. We get another really doctorish moment here when he's talking to the Silurians and Liz has just found his cure. They ask him how many of the humans will survive and he just says, they will all survive. And he's like so confident in this. It feels really, really doctorish. It also helped out that, you know, Miss Shaw, since she is an actual scientist, picked up his notes and was like, I got this. Yeah. Yes. That was awesome. That. They're showing her as being incredibly capable, which is great. Just wanted to be a little bit more involved, a little more screen time. I love what the show has done for the past two female companions. You know, with Zoe mm -hmm. and now with Liz, we've had two very smart, very, very capable women, which is a real breath of fresh air after Victoria, Polly, Dodo. Mm -hmm. This is fantastic. I'm, I'm loving this. Now we're getting to the point where they're bringing out the molecular disperser. Plan B, let's just make the Earth uninhabitable for humans and make it hot as balls. <laughs> I mean, the doctor's already getting prepared. He's just in his plain white t-shirt. Yeah, his white trousers. And this then becomes a traditional base under siege as the Silurians are trying to break into the nuclear test site. They, they totally get they in. There's no trying. <laughs> yeah, as they do, as they overrun it and try and get... It's not under siege for very long. No, five, five minutes of most effective <laughs> siege so far. And it's resolved rather quickly. <laughs> oh, yes, because the doctor does another doctor-ish thing where he's able to pretend that he's working on it, but be sabotaging it at the same time. I love how the Liz has faith in him. So the Brigadier tells her not to trust him, not to help him. And she's like, no, he knows what he's doing. Which mm -hmm. seems a little out of character for the Brigadier, considering that he has a longer history with the Doctor. That's a very good point, because it seems, and Anthony raised this earlier, and you, we definitely see it at the very end, we are starting to build up a very kind of a, a conflict between the Doctor and the Brigadier and their relationship. And I think that will carry on a little bit. Yeah, it seems to be very much the conflict between science and the military. Yes. Mm -hmm. I do, uh, on a lighthearted note, I really do enjoy the scene uh, in Episode 7 where Liz has to explain exactly what's going on to the Brigadier. Also, being, it's done as you know for the audience to get an understanding of what's happening in regards to the grand idea that the Silurians are doing with the Van Allen belt. That's a bit of the science lesson. And then the other bit is we get a little bit of a science lesson on how a nuclear generator works with lowering mm -hmm. ur uranium rods into the generator to ramp up the power. That was pretty cool. 
We also learned that they weren't following regulations and they had an elevator, but they didn't have any stairs. That's true. <laughs> yes. Just not throwing... even Chernobyl had that problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really love here how at first we think it's a bluff. Everyone else thinks it's a bluff. And then the doctor's like, oh, no, it's I'm, I'm not bluffing. The reactor really is overloading. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... Guys, we, we got a problem here. <laughs> At first, he didn't seem stressed about it. He was just like, no, it's it's a problem, but I'm just going to be like, just sitting here. It was weird. And the new Silurian leader is so vindictive that rather than letting his people kill the Doctor and friends there and then, he's like, no, we'll just leave them to die from radiation. Let them die slowly and in pain. Brutal. So then they get that all sorted out. Thanks to doing something with the neutron flow. I'm sure that'll never come up uh again. <laughs> <laughs> Some classic Doctor rewiring. Yes. Yeah. Do we already get to the part where the Doctor is showing off his awesome tat and, and yes. t-shirt? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yep. Yeah. You yeah. don't see the Doctor in a t-shirt too often. No, you don't. The Silurian leader, I do want to touch briefly on him because as he's sending everyone else into hibernation, they kind of realize something's faulty and one of them has to stay behind. And he says, as leader, it should be me. And to me, that's actually really, really good leadership. He's taking one for the team, it, making sure yeah. everyone else mm -hmm. survives. It's the classic captain goes down with the ship. Yeah. 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 Which, given how much of a piece of shit he's been, <laughs> I would not have expected that. I'd have expected him to be like, no, I must survive to lead our people into the new era once we're all revived again. To be fair, him being a dick, he was never a dick to his own people. I mean, aside from the old leader. Well, I mean, aside from the first leader, but, you know, he, they had a little coup and it's fine. But he seems to be driven by by self-interest and gathering power. And here he's like, yeah, I'll be the one who doesn't get to realize any of this because by the time you all revive again, I'll be dead. It was a nice character twist, a nice little note to him, because I agree with you, Anthony. I was not expecting it when it was going into that. I thought when he was like asking him about the hibernation bed. I thought he was going to look at his buddy and say, hey, what's that over there? And then like knock him out and then jump in it real quick or something. <laughs> and of course, there's the inevitable face down between him and the doctor where he tries to kill the doctor. The brigadier has the doctor's back, right. shoots the Silurian leader. And then we get something really curious. So earlier we had Dr. Quinn getting really lusty over the hunt for knowledge and what the Silurians might be able to give him. And here we have the Doctor planning to revive the Silurians one by one until they find one who will reveal the race's secrets. Yeah, that seemed really off to me. Yeah. I can understand his point. I mean, we're trying to, like you said before, identify him as the other. And I think he feels that now that the threat is gone, especially if you just do one at a time and it's closely monitored. Well, I, I feel like the whole storyline with Dr. Quinn was intended to impart a lesson that seeking out knowledge at all costs is bad. And again, how do you know, how can you have controls in place around this with this advanced species to know that it's not going to escape? You're not going to have another situation like this. And it's it seems to be the Doctor hasn't learned anything from what happened to Quinn. Or maybe he just he can't resist well, knowledge. Maybe. maybe that's going to be maybe. his weakness. Because the other thing, too, is the main thing is that they need to be able to block that eye, apparent, that yeah, third eye, whatever we want to call it. But anyway, the Brigadier, on the other hand, has a very different plan. I did like how it wasn't so much the Brigadier's plan. It came down from the government. Seal it. 
Yeah. Mm, that's true. And it was actually seal it. It wasn't necessarily like blow them up. Right. You don't yeah. know. I mean, it's the doctor says, oh, that's murder. You don't know that. They're just trying to seal the exits. I mean, you see the, the results of the explosion killing the Silurian leader. So we don't know whether all of their survival kit was crushed or not. So it's a bit ambiguous. But yeah, the, the assumption is that the Brigadier has killed them all. It's implied that it's genocide. So once again, there's that tension between the Doctor and the military. And that's a very unusual way to end it. This is the first time. Can you think of a time on the show so far where we've had two main characters seemingly being at odds with each other? And that's how the serial ends? Not just that, but a serial ending with a result that the Doctor feels was wrong. Yeah, you know, this it. is not mm-hmm. a happy ending. You would be forgiven if you went away from this thinking, well, the Doctor's never going to work with Unit again. Seven episodes down, should we rate this bad boy? Let's do it. All right, so this time round, we start with Don. There are a lot of really good ideas in the serial. I like the idea of a race of ancient people coming back up. That part in itself is actually slightly Lovecraftian. There are a couple of good ideas with the the mystery of what they want, who are they working with them, but that kind of gets thrown aside because the guy dies and they have this plague plot. To me, it just didn't quite gel. There were a lot of logical and tonal inconsistencies. Even overlooking that, the music and the sound effects just drove me insane. Beyond that, many times I just found myself somewhat frustrated. At the same time, it's not awful. It is not terrible. I don't absolutely hate it. It's just a story that didn't grab me as much as I wanted or that I I really loved. I'm going to give it a bit more credit than my original gut feeling is, and I'm going to give it six Wookiee holes out of ten. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Julie. I have a lot of the same opinions. A lot of the base concepts are actually really good. But the problem is, is there's too many of them. I had the issue of too many conflicts, science versus military, old versus new. And then I had issues with the language that was used with humans being called apes, because that's language that I don't particularly care for. And obviously the music drove me insane. So I'm going to be probably a little bit more harsh on this one. And I'm giving it 4.5 glassless windows out of 10. Okay, Riley, you are next. To quote the great HBO series Chernobyl, in regards to this serial, not great, not terrible. (laughs) I think the sets do the best that they possibly could, and I kind of enjoy them. This is a revamped show, and it's still trying to find its flow. I love the ending, and with the hint of a future conflict between the Doctor and the Brigadier. Uh, The curveball of the plague plot I thought was really good, but I believe Don... Is very correct on that. It could have been played a little bit earlier into the serial. Could be one less episode. I also think that too, and that would have helped by bringing the plague element into it a little bit earlier. Despite the supporting characters being annoying, I thought the acting was better than other bad bosses I had seen before. (laughs) And to quote everyone else, the music and the sound effects, oh my god, absolutely (laughs) terrible. I give it 6 out of 10 inflatable T-Rex costumes. Ooh, And that leaves me, I agree with most of what everyone said. There's a lot packed in here and it feels kind of disjointed between the manhunt across the moors, the epidemic, which seems like it becomes a pandemic. I think there's a mention of it spreading to Paris at one point. And then you've got the doomsday device plot at the end. So they they go through three different plots and it just doesn't flow that well. You've got a lot of really, really unlikable characters 
they're not like unlikable in a way that you love to hate them. They're unlikable just in a your kind of annoying way. The only ones that I think are done well are Dr. Quinn until he goes a little too unsubtle in acting suspiciously and Masters. And then, of course, Captain Hawkins, who I have a soft spot for, but he's barely in it. You don't get to know him. He just walks around saying, yes, sir. OK, you man, go go do that. The music is annoying, but I, I still found myself really enjoying this. I watched it in pretty short order over the course of 36, 48 hours, which is unusual for me for a, a story of such length. Despite all of its shortcomings, I didn't hate it. And I think I'm probably going to rate it the highest out of everyone and give it 6.5 third eyes. That gives us a story average of... 5.75, which is the lowest since the Space Pirates, but it would be hard to be lower than that because that was 1.5. That pretty much brings us to the end of our discussion. We will be back next time round for David Whitaker's final bow with the Ambassadors of Death. But for now, as always, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Costume Change Level Zoe, was recorded on Wednesday the 23rd of June 2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can also interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, some Doc 2 stories can be a bit triggering. We recommend against watching this one while a pandemic is ongoing.